Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 in it. We've been working our way through this book for some time now. And lately we've been in a section that seeks to flesh out what it looks like when someone becomes a Christian. What changes when someone becomes a Christian? As I pondered that question again this week, I saw Peter answering that, I think, a few different ways. Maybe a few different layers of answers to the question, what changes when someone becomes a Christian? On one level, back in chapter 1 into chapter 2, Peter says, a lot has changed. So just glance back if you remember these these talks from weeks past, this time in God's Word. I know many of you are trying to memorize First Peter along with the preaching of it. And so you know very well these words, like in chapter 1, verse 1, that we're elect and chosen. We're, verse 2, we're foreknown. We've been cleansed by Jesus' blood on the cross. We've been set apart or sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience. We've been born again, verse 3 says, to this living hope because Jesus is raised in new life, on our behalf, we have a, a heavenly inheritance, verse 4 says. It, it doesn't perish, it doesn't get old, it, it doesn't fade away, it can't get defiled, it can't be stolen because it's kept in heaven for us. And that inheritance is nothing less than God himself. It's not, it's not gold crowns or gold streets. We ourselves are being kept by God's power, verse 5 says. Even in our suffering, it's for purpose, it's... It's more precious than gold because we come out the other side refined like fire, like gold in the fire. We don't yet see Jesus, verse 8, but we believe in him and we rejoice in him with a joy that is full of glory. It's inexpressible. We couldn't describe it or your head would blow up. We Christians have all this. We Christians have a lot that's changed when we became Christians. That's one level of an answer. Another level would be to say, nothing's changed. Nothing changes is one answer that Peter gives us because as we've been seeing in recent weeks, in chapter 2, verse 13, he talks about government. How should Christians relate to the government around them? And he says, you stay. You obey. You respect. That was chapter 2, verse 13. We saw two weeks ago, chapter 2, verse 18. What about slaves and masters and employers and employees? Do you flee now that you're free in Christ? Does it mean you're free in every way and free from all authority or those over you? No, he says, stay, respect those who are over you and do good. Now we come to a third one, chapter 3, verse 1 this week. What about when you're a believing wife with an unbelieving husband? Should I stay or should I go? What do you do? Now these last couple of messages in 1 Peter have not been easy. We've talked about government. We've talked about slavery and work. We've talked about things that our flesh doesn't want to do, things we don't want to really believe or embrace. It's no easier this week. We come to another one in the same vein, maybe one that's even harder because it's getting more personal. You see, there's a progression of sorts 
from these three different things Peter's talking about from chapter 2, verse 13, now into chapter 3. It's moving really from the public realm down to the personal realm. It's moving from government to living room. And in that sense, Peter says, nothing changes. You stay. But a third answer to that question, what changes when we become a Christian? Another answer Peter's giving us here is that everything changes, even within these same contexts, these stations of life, of government and job and home and marriage. Those don't change, but the aims now are vastly different. The motivations are massively different. The actions and the attitudes especially are massively different now in Christ. So now we focus in on this one. A saved woman married to an unbelieving husband. What should she do? Peter gives six verses to this. Chapter 3, verse 1, he writes... Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your your adorning Be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening." It's God's word for us this morning. It seems like a pretty narrow topic, doesn't it? Women who are Christians married to non-Christians. That certainly is represented here by some, but probably not the majority. But this is a passage, surprisingly, that is vastly applicable, widely applicable. It's, It's diverse because it speaks to young men who aren't married, and looking for a certain kind of girl. It speaks to those girls who aren't yet married and what kind of girl they should be. It speaks to, yes, Christian ladies who are married to non-Christian men, but it also speaks to Christian ladies married to Christian men. And something in between, Christian ladies who are married to Christian men so-called, but they're difficult, they're not godly. Really, it's a description of what godliness is in some ways and specifically what feminine godliness is and what what marriage is and what marriage is specifically for the wife so there's a lot there i want to pull out five different things from this passage for us to think about the first is a call to order peter gives us a call to order to structure to in a sense some kind of hierarchy in verse one he says Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That word be subject means to place oneself under another. And it's the third time that Peter has used this in a, a few short verses here. Back in chapter 2.13, there he said, be subject to civil authority. 
And then verse 18, be subject, you servants, to your masters. Now, chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, which really means similarly, not in exactly the same way, but in a similar way, with the same word, the same verb, the same command, wives, be subject to your husband. So there is an exact same kind of relationship here between these three kinds of subjections or submissions, but there's... There's certainly some overarching themes that connect them, right? Each of them has a context of being treated unfairly. Each of them, you could say, is less than ideal circumstances. In each of these cases, it's not ideal. It's not what you want. And yet, Peter calls for, in each case, voluntarily submitting yourself to that context for the sake of Christ and for the cause of Christ in the world. Now, before we talk any more about this principle of uh, a wife's submission to her husband, we have to first make clear what this doesn't mean. Let's get that out of the way. Wayne Grudem, a scholar who's probably written more on this subject than anyone, uh, he suggests these seven things that submission does not mean. It's not putting a husband in place of Christ or making a husband a kind of mediator to Christ. Number two, it's not giving up independent thought, ladies. It's not checking your brain into your husband's pocket. Third, it's not giving up efforts to influence your husband. doesn't mean there can't be persuasion, discussion, even at times healthy debate. Fourth, it's not giving into every demand of the husband, especially where that violates Christ and his word and what God says. Fifth, it's not based on any lesser intelligence or competence. She doesn't place herself under or submit to her husband because she's not smart enough to do otherwise or because she's incompetent to do otherwise. No. Sixth, it's not being fearful or timid. In fact, that's how our passage ended, right? Verse 6, don't fear anything. That's frightening. This calling isn't a calling to fearfulness. And lastly, seventh, it's not inconsistent with equality in Christ. He's not saying there's an inequality either in worth or in, in spiritual connectedness to Christ. We'll see next week, verse 7, one verse to husbands. Next week we'll talk about why he did six verses to women and only one to husbands. It's certainly not because husbands couldn't use a little bit more. But we'll get to that next week. Father's Day, I've got a present for you men. <laughs> but verse 7, he said, They are heirs with you of the grace of life. Heirs, your fellow heirs, men and women, husbands and wives, as it says in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but you're all one in Christ. And yet, these great qualifications that Wayne Grudem gives and Paul's teaching in Galatians 3.28 don't make Peter's words in 1 Peter 3.1 disappear. They don't make them invalid or meaningless or useless. 
Peter is not just describing something that's cultural and hence temporary. That's a common misconception. Peter was just describing what was around him, what was a given in his day with a very patriarchal sort of home culture. No, we know this in other verses like it in the Bible are not merely cultural for two main reasons. There are others, but two main reasons. Number one, these commands like this often in Scripture, not here, but elsewhere, are rooted in the creation order. So 1 Timothy 2 says, Adam was created first, then the woman. And God had design intentions in the order of creation. Another reason why we know it's not just cultural when the Bible talks like this is because it's, it's really springing from a theological picture. A theological picture of God's relationship with his people. Time and time again, he says, my relationship with you is something like a husband and a wife. And he put that in the whole creation order from the beginning. That was a design. It's not like he was looking for some good illustration. And he was scratching his head for a while and he said, marriage, that's it. That's pretty good. It's not perfect, but that'll do. But instead... In his infinite wisdom from eternity's past, he put in this illustration. He designed this thing called marriage of needing someone, of one leading, one loving and following. And nowhere else is this better said than in Ephesians 5. You want to turn over there, Ephesians 5? I'm sure you know the passage that I'm referring to if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've read your Bible much at all, but... It's worth seeing these three, four verses or so that we'll read to remember why Peter is saying what he's saying here. He's not just saying, be subject to your own husbands because it was culturally acceptable or be subject to your own husbands because that's all we know these days. He's saying, be subject to your own husbands because he's fully aware of what Paul said here. Starting in verse 22, Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And uh, as husbands say yes and amen, he quickly turns the table and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We'll talk more about men next week, as I said. But there's no escaping it. Marriage is a theological picture. Just as Christ lovingly leads and his church happily follows, so husbands are to lead and lead spiritually and sacrificially and lovingly and humbly. And wives are to honor and to follow and to love in return. Like the church follows and loves and respects Christ. Also, just as Christ submits himself to the Father, his heavenly Father. He does his Father's will, right? So the Father, in a sense, leads and commands and and says... Do this, do that. Jesus then does this and that. He does his Father's will. So the church does 
what Christ says, and so wives also follow their husbands. That means that Jesus, being of equal worth and deity with his Father, chose in his plan with the Father and the Spirit to have a different role and purpose. And so it is with husbands and wives. There is an equality in worth and an equality of standing before Christ. But God made them to be different and made them differently. Husbands and wives have many similarities. They have so much that's just the same because they're human beings. But they are not interchangeable either with their parts or with their hearts. They're made to complement each other. And this is mutually beneficial that they complement each other. It's for our best that we get this, that we get a one that's suitable, as Adam was looking for in the garden. It's not just right, it's not just theological, but it's also mutually beneficial. Now let's move on to the second thing that Peter teaches us. He talks about a worst-case scenario. Secondly, a worst-case scenario. After he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, he says, even if some do not obey the word. Even if. He's talking worst-case scenarios. This isn't the command, be subject, is not just for these kind of wives. But even if these kinds of wives, even for those who have husbands who don't obey the word, which means they're not Christians. You see, especially in Peter, in this letter, The word is usually the gospel. And obeying the word or obeying the gospel is usually conversion, getting saved, believing. It is embracing gospel truth. You see it in chapter 2, verse 8. You see it in chapter 4, verse 17, about those who don't obey the gospel of God. So this is talking about husbands who haven't yet come to faith. It's an issue that Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians 7. This question of whether a wife should stay. Imagine in Roman times, you're under a husband in a way that culturally and economically you wouldn't be even today. Socially so, for sure. So what happens when you have an unbelieving husband and an unbelieving wife, but then she believes and he refuses? Should she stay or should she go? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. He'll later go on and say, if he wants to go, don't don't hold him back. Don't say, no, no, you can't go. And if he wants to go because you become a Christian, then let him go. But otherwise, if he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband, he says, is made holy because of his wife. This doesn't mean she's saved because she's, he's near a saved person. It's not salvation by osmosis. But, but he's set apart. He's got unique opportunities. He's in a unique environment. He's living, in a sense, with a, a live-in missionary. That's unique. So if you can, stay. You can see how that complements what Peter says here. Now, you have to know how radical it was 
in the first century Roman world for a woman to abandon the religion of her husband and likely the religion of her parents, which would have been the same. It would have been Roman paganism. It would have been the Roman pantheon of gods. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter said that Christians were spoken of, they were spoken against as evil. Remember, Christians in those days were thought to be insurrectionists and atheists and incestual. They were accused of burning down Rome. The Christian movement was thought of being as against the economy, against government, against the Roman way, not being patriotic, you could say. So Christians weren't just wrong or weird. It was thought they weren't good for society. Imagine being a a typical pagan Roman man in these days, hearing these things about Christians, falsely as they were, false as they were, and your wife comes home and says, I'm a Christian. I got baptized. And you say, what about all the other gods that we believe in and sacrifice to and worship? I've renounced those. All of them. They're false gods. They're not real. And now she's carrying a big old Bible and she's got highlighters in the front. And, you know, she's talking all the time about this Jesus and she's going to meet with these Christians. You don't know what they're doing. You haven't gone. You just know they meet together quite often and it seems very strange. And imagine on top of that, that the culture of the home in those days was more patriarchal, less egalitarian than our own. Keep in mind, in those days, it was a violation of social order for a woman to think that she could liberate herself to choose her own gods apart from her husband. It would have been shameful in the community for the husband. His family and friends would have shook it, shaken their heads about a guy who has a wife that did this kind of thing. In that sense, Christianity in those days was seen as a liberal movement, ironically. You wouldn't think so today, right? It was actually a socially conservative thing that pushed against the reputation that says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. No doubt some Roman men would have gotten to that part and gone, phew, okay, well, at least that's staying. At least that's somewhat in place. At least that's kosher. And, of course, it's not taught here just for social reasons. And, of course, there are limits to it. There are limits to her subjection to her husband, her submission to her husband. Her husband is not God, just like the Roman government isn't, and just like masters aren't. If they say sin, then you don't. If a husband says, you can't go to church, you do. There's a higher authority. She's to be a faithful Christian and a faithful wife. And when those are in competition, faithful Christian wins out. That was radical in the first century Roman world. So even if today your husband isn't a Christian, even if in the first century times you have a Roman man, pagan as he is, how do you relate to him? You 
subject yourself to it. You submit to him. You place yourself under him. You respect and honor him. You let him lead where he can, where he does. Unless it's in religion, and then you can't. And if it's true for those with an unbelieving husband, then it's also true for Christians Christian wives who have husbands who are professing Christians, but they don't obey the word on an ongoing basis. Maybe they've obeyed the gospel word in a sense. They've made a profession of faith, but their lives aren't marked by godliness or truth or courage or care or humility or love or Bible or prayer. Now, ideally, ladies, your submission to your husband goes hand in glove with his godly leadership. But God's word doesn't put either of those callings in conditional terms. So a woman's submission to her husband is not conditioned on his loving leadership or Christ-like leadership. And vice versa, we'll see next week, a, a man's call to love and serve and sacrifice and lead his wife is not dependent on her performance of submission or the level of honor with which she shows him. Regardless of your spouse's level of godliness or intellect, regardless of how well they do your call, their calling to you, you must do yours. Now, maybe you're a Christian and you're not married yet. Since 1 Peter 3 talks about this Christian, non-Christian marriage, let me make something very clear to you. Christians are not to marry non-Christians. The Bible is very clear on this. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't get hitched up with unbelievers. You can love them, sure. You can, you can witness to them, sure. You can be friends with them, sure. But do not be unequally yoked, hitched with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? And just so succinctly in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, Paul says, marry whomever you want. And then here's a great phrase, only in the Lord. Marry whomever you want, ugly, pretty, heavy, skinny, rich, poor, another nationality, doesn't matter. Another country, go for it. Only in the Lord. The Lord. Only she's a Christian. That implies, I think, that Christians shouldn't dabble even in the first steps of a marriage with an unbeliever. What we call dating, courting. That train rolls downhill and picks up speed. And it's impossible to push the train back up the hill and very few people will jump off that train once it's gotten some speed going. So don't think, well, I'm just going to see how it goes. Or, 
I'm going to tie my heart to this guy for a little bit and hope and pray that he becomes a Christian somewhere before the wedding day. Many a fool has thought that. But regardless of how you got there, if you are one of those who's a Christian married to a non-Christian, know that there is a gracious provision in Christ for these worst-case scenarios. Worst-case scenarios like living under the Roman government or or like living in a a kind of slavery or living in worst-case scenario marriages with worst-case husbands. Despite that difficulty, despite whatever treatment might come, The things that Peter has talked about earlier all still apply. All that great privilege, all that lofty promise, all that inheritance language, all the things that are still to come, all that identity that comes in Christ that is through the roof, it is out of this world in its gloriousness. All that is yours despite the difficult context in which you're in. In these seemingly impossible scenarios, God not only gives grace to endure, but he also gives the assignment of showing forth his supernatural work in our lives. That leads to the third point. A sermon without words. A sermon without words. At the end of verse 1, he says, Be subject that these unbelieving husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now let's clarify something right up front. No one can become a Christian without hearing the gospel. No one looks at another Christian or a Christian or a group of Christians and says, they're moral, they're good, they love each other. Wait a minute. I just thought of something that I haven't thought before or ever heard before. Jesus died on a cross for my sin. No, no, no. You can't make that connection automatically. It's a connection you you first hear in the gospel words and then see verified in gospel lives. But don't miss the word here. It's not that these men can get saved without the gospel. They just see their wives as changed people and boom. They're changed themselves. No, we're born again through the word, chapter 1, verse 23 says. But, especially when it's up close and when it's very personal and when there are some extra emotions wrapped up in it all, sometimes works, lives, do something that words and language can't, or at least can't yet. In this case, Peter says, these men will be won not by argument, but by actions. They'll have already heard the word, perhaps from you, perhaps from others, hopefully from both. They'll already have heard the word, but rather than harp on them about the word, you show them by by your actions that this thing is real, that you're changed, that something's supernatural and in no small part because of that changed life, they may be one, one over to Christ. Often there are two common missteps by Christian women who are married to non-Christian men. 
One is to cajole those men into being Christians, badgering, harping, nagging. The other, secondly, would be to cajole these non-Christian men to act like Christians, sort of a shortcut. So one misstep would be, come on, believe, be a Christian, come on, get saved. When are you going to get saved? Don't you know you're going to go to hell? Another one would be, you should pray. You should read your Bible. Come on, we do this now. You should give some money to the church. It's what we do. That actually may be easier than the first, but it's a shortcut. Neither are good. Instead, ladies, follow his lead with godly conduct and with respect. And he may see something different. We don't know. Peter's prescription may or may not end in a husband's salvation. We don't know. It's, it's not automatic. It's not one plus one equals salvation. God is sovereign in these matters. He alone can open hearts and open eyes to see. But he uses means, right? He's sovereign, but he uses human means. And our realm is the realm of means, And so we do what we can. We live how we should. We pray. And we trust him. And we trust what he tells us to do that he might most likely bless. This happened in the home of St. Augustine when he was a child. He later wrote in his book called Confessions about his mother, He said she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to the Lord, speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. The end of life. Who knows how long before the Lord opens eyes. Who, long, who knows how long it will take for them to see that this thing is real and it's not just a, a fad, a temporary thing. But, but ask yourself this, ladies, especially if this is describing you. Can you buy into this? Where Peter's prescription here sounds contrary to what you've done and what you think and what you want, you have to ask, do you trust God in his word and do you want what's best for, you, for God and for your spouse? Or, or are your rights and your needs and, and your control actually the ultimate thing in the equation here? It would be a sad thing to take this wrong path and, and even to do it in the name of Christ, in the name of a, a higher morality or to feel that you can be harsh or condescending to your husband because you're holier. You can't boss your husband around because you know more Bible than he does. You can't boss your husband around because you know to pray and he doesn't. We're already getting into a broader context now as we talk about this, aren't we? And this applies now to all wives, doesn't it? It applies to all wives. Ladies, whether you're in a difficult marriage or a good marriage or married to a non-Christian, 
controlling your husband by manipulation, however compliant he gets, and hence however peaceful your home is, it's not the answer. So don't be combative. Don't rely on a barrage of words to work your magic. Don't trust in your ability to outlast him in a debate or an argument. Don't trust your ability to outwit him in a fight. Don't use nagging. Don't treat him like a child. Ladies, these are not the tools that God has given you for his kingdom. And yet the world around you knows only these tools. They think these are the only tools in the toolbox, except one other, which we'll talk about in just a minute. I know this is a tough topic. It sounds chauvinistic. And some ladies are understandably defensive in a topic like this because there's been abuse maybe in your past. This is sensitive stuff. But, but I don't want to walk gingerly here because some have been abused and then neglect the rest that maybe could take something a little tougher. So apart from abuse, let's just take that out of the category of marriage and, and what this passage is saying. You know, if I can just speak anecdotally, I've seen very few men who treat their wives like children. I've seen very few men who boss them around publicly or are overtly and publicly rude to them. But whether in person or on TV, I've seen it countless times in the other direction. I've seen wives do that to their husbands many, many times. It's more culturally acceptable these days. It simply is. You turn on the television, every comedy that's on there has a dumb husband and a witchy wife. This is the air we breathe. It's the current of the stream. And hopefully, ladies, you're recognizing that and you're swimming upstream against it. God's call on your life here is a small voice within this noisy current around you that's going in the other direction. So hear and receive words like this from Proverbs. Like in chapter 12, verse 4, that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. Or in Proverbs 21, it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful wife. We don't want that. You don't want that. Instead, Proverbs 31, the heart of her husband trusts her and he will have no lack of gain because she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Isn't that a, isn't that a happier life? Not just for the husband, also for the wife. And let's just broaden this principle before moving on one step further. This, this has to do with Not just marriage, but change in general, change in people. It happens not by force or protest or manipulation or cajoling or controlling or bossing, not by external means, but by God using godliness in a supernatural way. 
maybe you're not a Christian, we pray that you would believe. We pray you trust Christ. Maybe you're a man here who's not a Christian. Maybe you're married to a Christian woman. Maybe you're just a plain old non-Christian listening, listening in on a conversation that frankly is very weird, isn't it? might feel strange. We'd love to talk to you more about how we come to this point of following God's ways. We didn't used to. But in Christ, at the cross, there is mercy, there's forgiveness. There's restoration, not just restoration to him personally so we can pray to him and commune with him, but restoration to his purposes as well. That's what this is all about. That's why it seems weird to you. It's not because Christians have adopted an unusual morality or weird rules. It's because we go God's way. We go God's way because of Christ, because he fixes things, because he's restoring us. Not perfectly so. We're works in progress, but that's the plan. Now we have a couple of more matters that we'll wrap up quickly, more quickly anyway. Number four, what does Peter say in this passage? One thing he says is that there's a beauty that's not just skin deep. A beauty that's not just skin deep. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. That doesn't mean what it looks like it means. It shouldn't be understood in wooden, literal terms. No woman here should feel awkward about the fact that you did a braid this morning or you know, slipping a gold bracelet off your wrist subtly and placing it in your purse like, I didn't have that on. I wasn't wearing that today. No, no, no. I mean, he even says, or the clothing you wear. I mean, he's certainly not commending nakedness. He wants clothes. That would be a different kind of adorning that would be uncalled for. You know what he's saying here. He's talking about that which is merely external. Bracelets aren't bad and braids aren't bad. In Peter's day, women would do these do's that are way bigger, fancier do's than anything you've ever seen on one of those bride TV shows. Okay? A bride with her hair all tied up and sprayed and stuff in it. They would do something like that times 10. It was a mark of their, their wealth. It was a beautiful thing, it was thought. It was seductive. That's what Peter's confronting. He's confronting multiple layers, really. Appearance and attire, which is too ostentatious. Appearance, which is too sensual. Appearance, which is too costly, extravagant. Appearance in dress, which is too time-consuming. It would take sometimes a day to do one of these do's. Appearance in dress, which is too tied to one's identity. And appearance in dress, which would be used for power. No, no, no. Again, these aren't our tools, are they? These are the tools of the world. This is their other tool. One is by badgering, nagging, being a witchy woman. The other tool is sensuality. The body, dressing to kill. Peter says instead, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Put on this, 
Let it come from the inside, not the outside. He's talking about a beauty that is inside out rather than a beauty that's just outside out. (laughs) An outside beauty can't work its way inward and make us inwardly more beautiful. It never does. A newfound external beauty, new hairdo, new clothes, new makeup, new surgery even. It may make you feel better for a bit, but it fades. It doesn't change anything. And it certainly doesn't change people like Peter's talking about. He's talking about an imperishable beauty, an imperishable one. You see, the things of adornment, beads and the hair and gold bracelets, however fancy or costly they are, they're perishable. Our bodies themselves are perishable. Everybody in here is obeying the second law of thermodynamics. We're all heading towards decay. We're all falling apart. And yet, is it possible that a woman could be more beautiful to her husband at 70 than she was at 17? Peter insists, yes, comes from the inside. It has nothing to do with wrinkles. It's a beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That doesn't mean that she's silent or that she's shy or that she's sheepish. It means that she's calm, she's tranquil, she's confident. Even Jesus was gentle like this. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, he said. So wives should love this moniker. A gentle and quiet spirit. Not demanding not restless, not easily tizzied. That's a phrase I made up this week. Not easily tizzied. That's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about peace. And it's not just a matter of personality differences here. He's not just, well, picking on one group of women and saying, all you should be like this kind. No, we all have a natural bent in a a certain direction. Some of that could change or should change. Some of it shouldn't change. And a gentle and quiet spirit won't look the same in each person. But, but Peter's talking universally about Christian women loving, pursuing, and adorning themselves, dressing themselves up in, pursuing, and growing in this gentle and tranquil spirit. It takes work. Adorn. That's a verb. It's a command. Ask yourself, how much time does it take to get your body ready in the morning? Ask yourself, how much time does it take to get your soul dressed in the morning? It's precious in God's sight, he says. I love that. Which, in God's sight, is very precious. The phrase in the original Greek is almost something like, it catches his attention and he smiles. Do you dress physically for the sight of others? Instead, dress spiritually for the sight of God, which will also catch the eye of your husband. Husbands, are you cheering on the right things? Hmm? Is your wife's struggle with image owing in part to you? Young men, unmarried, this is the kind of girl you want. This is what you're looking for. Unmarried ladies, 
young or not, this is the woman you want to be. One last thing, there's an example here. Fifth, an example from long ago. In verse 5, Peter turns back to the Old Testament and he says, This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah, for example, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Calling him Lord? Now, obey, we can maybe adjust that for our terms these days and say respect, follow, heed, defer, that kind of thing. But calling him Lord? Now, you've got to understand that's a cultural expression in Bible times. And it's not a commandment for uh, every wife to call her husband Lord. Although it says Sarah called Abraham Lord. I kept thinking this week, Sarah called Ryan Lord. Sarah called Ryan Lord. <laughs> Flows off the tongue, doesn't it? It's almost Bible. It's almost Bible. No, no, no. Don't get hung up on that word Lord. There are hundreds or even thousands of ways in which submission and respect and gentleness get fleshed out in, in a marriage. And in Bible times, this was one of them, and it was an appropriate one in Bible times. It's probably not an appropriate one today. If you want to call your husband Lord, go for it. Husbands, don't call for it. Now, why Sarah? Is she a good example for this? She's actually a complicated example of this. She's a complicated example. This is interesting. The passage Peter is alluding to is Genesis 18. Genesis 18. Let me read this to you. Here's the story where God is telling Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have kids. And even though they're very, very old, he keeps insisting they're going to have kids. Listen to this. The Lord said, I'll return to you this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord... See that? That's about Abraham. My Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham... Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. This time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. She heard the Lord say that, and she denied that she laughed. I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. God said, No, you did laugh. What an interesting story. Here you got Sarah laughing at the Lord's promise. No surprise, the chapter before, Abraham fell on his face laughing when the Lord told him the same thing. She follows in her husband's footsteps here in the wrong way. Like her husband, she doubted the Lord's power and the Lord's promises. In this specific case, she didn't do very good at hoping in God, like 1 Peter 3 says. And then when she's confronted about laughing about it, she denies it, and she denies it to God. No, I didn't say that. Like, he can't read minds. And it says that she denied it because she was what? Afraid. 
Remember how the passage in 1 Peter 3 ends? They don't have to be afraid. She's not here a very good example of that. So here you've got this this whole muddled mess which isn't very exemplary. And then you have this passing comment in the middle. It is actually under her breath. It's something she says to herself as she's denying the Lord, as she's laughing about it. She says of Abraham, my Lord. Wow. I think that means that this isn't just lip service. She's not calling Abraham Lord because God is in the room. It's not to flatter Abraham. It's not to talk him up in the presence of important people. No, after all these decades of marriage, now the hum of the motor of her heart when she thinks of Abraham is, he's my man. I'm his girl. I follow him. I trust him. I lead him. He's my leader. There's no great way to put that in our language today. She can say, Abraham, my Lord, and move on, and we don't really have something like that today. Maybe the closest would be, my man. I don't know. But the point is, is on the whole, Sarah is a model in her life. Hebrews 11 refers to her as a model. And in this one specific instance, even in the midst of some very bad stuff, it was just a a few chapters before that that she bossed Abraham to go sleep with the maid. Right? That's not good. I don't think. But here, Peter isn't hesitant to point out a highlight, just a highlight of her Submission and honor to her husband and to commend it to ladies to be her children, verse 6 says. If you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening, don't fear what's frightening. What a curious thing to say. Peter acknowledges there are things that are frightening. And no doubt a woman like that reading First Peter or hearing it read in the meeting of the church would maybe think of her husband. Remember that radical thing that it was in the first century Roman world for a woman to leave her husband's idolatrous religion and identify with Christ and his church. She may fear for her life. You don't have to fear that which is frightening. Maybe she's tempted to fear how this thing's going to turn out. Is he going to get saved? Is he going to believe? Are we going to have this tension forever? You don't have to fear what is frightening. Well, maybe she's tempted to fear his leadership. He's kind of dumb. Right? She's got several IQ points on him. He's a whole lot less spiritual. He doesn't obey the word. Can I, can I give up the reins knowing that? You don't have to fear that which is frightening. Oh, I know it's frightening. You don't have to fear it, though. Really, we could say this applies to all of us, doesn't it? Here we have this, this command at the end. Do good and don't fear anything that's frightening. So whether you're married, whether you're a girl, you're a boy, you're a man, you're a woman, whatever you are, you're a Christian, hear this, do good. 
You don't have to fear anything that's frightening. The Lord's in control. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for its specificity and yet its enduring relevance. Here it is, a first century letter we're reading and it applies so very well to our 21st century context. We pray you would apply it, Holy Spirit, to lives in specific ways. Specific things would get confronted by you. Specific things would be commended and encouraged by you. You would move us to do things differently in our homes. You'd cause us to live in different ways for your glory. And most of all, that you'd cause us to cling to Christ as our only saving hope, as the true joy, which is inexpressible and full of glory. That we would love him, and we would set our hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed when he comes again. That we would entrust our souls to him, who is the judge and our father and who is good to us. Thank you for Christ. Help us to see afresh that he's all that we need. For his sake we pray.